And we're going to be thinking over the next few minutes about Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 is where our reading will begin. And we'll read through from there till um, chapter 3, verse 7. So let me read those verses to us now. Malachi 2.17 says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. That's where we'll end our reading for this evening. Before we think about those verses together for the next few minutes, let me lead us in prayer. The psalmist writes, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. We praise you, God, our Father, because for those of us who have trusted in you, you are the God of our salvation. And we pray this evening that you would please lead us in your truth and teach us as we consider your word tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, human beings' desire for justice can be a powerful impulse. Think, for example, of a man called Simon Weisenthal. Weisenthal was a survivor of four concentration camps during the Second World War. And shortly after being liberated from the Mauthausen camp, though still physically and mentally very frail as a result of his treatment there, Weisenthal began documenting names and details of Nazis and collaborators. After the war concluded, Weisenthal launched an organization that was responsible for finding multiple Nazis, like Karl Silberbauer, the Gestapo officer who arrested Anne Frank. 
Weisenthal died in 2005, but the great majority of his life, certainly after the concentration camps, was consumed by a desire for justice, that the people who'd carried out awful acts were held to account. And whilst our personal experiences may not be as extreme as those of Weisenthal, I'm guessing that many of us here know how it feels to long for justice. Whether on a macro scale, as we think of uh, stories on the news about horrible crimes having been committed, or on a personal scale, as we long for the people who perhaps have wronged us to be held to account for the ways in which they've done so. And in one sense, for those of us who are Christians, that desire for justice can often be even stronger and perhaps even more troubling than for those who are not. Because, you see, we worship a God who is in control of all things, and a God who is just, and who is right, and who is good. And so as well as our frustrations at those people who might have wronged us or wronged others, well, we can also be tempted to trace that longing right back to God himself. Why hasn't God done anything about the injustice I see around me, we might think? Does he not care? Now, if that idea resonates with you at all, I wonder if the sentiments expressed at the end of Malachi chapter 2 have ever crossed your mind. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Let me couch the, the phrasing slightly differently. Why do bad people seem to get away with their badness. Perhaps the words that follow in Malachi 2.17 are closer to home. Where is the God of justice? If God is in control, and if he is just, well, why hasn't he intervened and stopped the injustice? I mean, where is he? As we read these words, we might intuitively empathize with God's people in Malachi chapter 2. And yet, there are a couple of different ways in which we might ask that kind of question, where is the God of justice? We might ask it through tears as we struggle to come to terms with the apparent injustice in the world or in our own lives. But there is a different way of asking it, a less genuine, less self-aware way of asking it. The person who says, I could never believe in a good, kind God, given all the evil there is in the world, but whose own life is a litany of selfishness and betrayal. Or perhaps the person who rails against institutional corruption and deceit in our society, but who doesn't think twice about lying themselves. Or in other words, the question asked by the person who wants justice, but just for other people. And if you've been here for any of our Sunday evenings in the book of Malachi, it might not surprise you to learn that the latter kind of tone is the tone with which this question is asked in the book of Malachi. 
See, we've seen over the past few Sunday evenings that before Malachi had arrived on the scene, God's people had repeatedly disobeyed him over the course of many, many generations, in fact. And eventually, as an act of judgment, the capital city of God's people, Jerusalem, was destroyed. And the people were taken away, hundreds of miles away, in fact, from their home to live in exile in a place called Babylon. Seventy years later, God had brought a small band of his people back to the land of Israel. They had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple again. And by the time Malachi's writing, we're probably a generation or so after that return, around 400 B.C., But though Israel had started off pretty strongly after coming home, old habits die hard. The people had begun to drift from God yet again, in multiple ways, in fact. In fact, they they drifted quite so much that even their attempt to put God in the dock by asking a question like, where is the God of justice?, well, it only really serves to highlight quite how far from him they had actually drifted. And we're going to think about that under our first heading this evening. Where is the God of justice? Now, I wonder if you've ever been driven to distraction by questions, either by the nature of the questions or the sheer number of them. The person at your front door or on Union Street with a clipboard who asks you if you have a minute or two to answer a couple of brief inquiries, but by the end of your conversation knows more about your life than your own family do. Or the person in the office who, no matter how many times you explain how to log on to the office computers, keeps asking again and again and again. And if you can't think of who that person is in your office, well, it might well be you. Uh, or, um, and if you've never done this before, then treat this as a public service announcement. Uh, wandering round a supermarket with a toddler, uh, for whom the question that is repeated ad nauseum is, can I have, can I have, can I have, as you pass the crisp aisle and the sweets aisle and the ice cream aisle and the magazine aisle. Questions can drive us to distraction, can't they? You might be wondering why I seem to have interpreted this question in Malachi 2 so negatively. Where is the God of justice, given that it's one we can resonate with? Well, the reason I interpret it so negatively is that God does. In fact, the image of a toddler wandering around the supermarket isn't a bad parallel at all. Just look at how verse 17 begins. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? See, they aren't asking the question as genuine inquirers, it seems, but as petulant toddlers in a supermarket snack aisle. And God finds it wearying. Now, it is worth taking a moment or two to consider exactly what's prompting them to ask this question at all. Why are they asking where God is? Why are they asking why evil people are being allowed to prosper? What might be prompting this kind of question? Well, we don't know for sure, but we can make what is a pretty decent guess, I think. I mentioned a moment or two ago that a few years before Malachi was writing, God's people had been brought back to Jerusalem and the city had been rebuilt 
It will, around that time, and in fact before that time, God had made promises to his people. Promises that he was going to establish them as an everlasting people. He was going to build Jerusalem 2.0, a brand new Jerusalem, and that things were going to be better than they ever had been before. And yet, as they look at that rebuilt city, it's just possible that they feel distinctly underwhelmed. That it doesn't look as good as they thought it should do. And not only does the city itself look a bit weak, well, the superpower nations around them look pretty strong. And so you might understand why they start to wonder if God really is good to his word, or if he's on the same side as those superpower nations, the ones who destroyed Jerusalem in the first place. Why do the bad guys seem to get away with it while we're left in this pathetic-looking city? Where is the God of justice? comes the question. Now that situation might seem like it's a million miles away from us and from our situations today. But can I just say, I really don't think it is at all. I wonder if you've ever heard anyone say something like, if there really was a God, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? For the Christian unions running events last week and this coming week, this is one of the most common objections you'll hear to the Christian faith. And we can get even closer to that in our parallel in Malachi, actually. Not just why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, but if there really was a good and right God, well, why does he allow bad things to happen to a Christian like me? I'm one of his people. Now, we need to treat that, that kind of comment or idea with great care because Malachi 2 and 3 isn't all that the Bible has to say about how God relates to the issue of justice in the world, not at all. And it's important to say that injustice grieves God very deeply indeed. And so a desire to genuinely see justice being done is a good and a right impulse. But this kind of question can be asked not so much through a desire for justice, but because we think that God isn't doing a very good job of being God. That is the sense of verse 17, isn't it? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of God, and he delights in them, say the people. Now, the accusation is outrageous. And behind it is a sense that I know better than God does about how to run things. If I was in charge... I'd see real justice being done. It's that kind of attitude that is wearying to God. Now, uh, I mentioned a few moments ago that justice and our desire for justice runs very deep indeed. In fact, there are a few issues that are likely to mobilize people to, to march and to protest like a sense of injustice. And there's a well-worn call and response chant for justice marches. You might have heard it before. It goes something like this. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? And I'm going to risk it. Can anyone finish the chant? When do we want it? Now, great. Well, some of you are going to make better protesters than others, if you don't mind me saying, but thank you for for indulging me. The people in Malachi 2 who are asking for God's justice are, in effect, asking for just that. They want justice as they see it, and they want it now, for people to be dealt with on their terms 
and in their timing. But in reply, God says, point two, be careful what you wish for. Let's think about that under our next heading this evening. Be careful what you wish for. Justice is coming. There is a real irony in this unit in Malachi. Because you see, God's people seem to have concluded that the God of justice has abandoned them. Where is he, after all? That's their problem. But in actual fact, their real problem isn't that God has abandoned them. Their real problem will come when he shows up. Just read with me again, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now just to tease apart what's going on in that verse, it's worth noting that there are two different characters being spoken about. The first character is verse 1, my messenger. And the messenger is effectively a herald. He is an announcer. His job is to prepare the road for another one to come. And that messenger, that announcer, is in one sense Malachi himself. Character two is the one who is to come, whose way is being prepared. And he's given a number of different names in verse one. He is called me. He is called the Lord. And he's called the messenger of the covenant. So what Malachi is speaking about is, in effect, an arrival in two parts. Malachi the herald declaring the arrival of another one, the Lord, who is coming, God himself. But if you've been around Hebron on Sunday mornings over the past few weeks and months, those two characters might be ringing some other bells too. A messenger heralding someone who is to come, followed by that one who is to come. One of the first people we meet in Mark's gospel that we've been studying on Sunday morning since last October is a man called John the Baptist. And he is a herald, a messenger. He was a prophet sent by God to prepare the way for someone greater. And in Mark's gospel, that someone greater is Jesus, is God himself. So Malachi seems to have two time frames in mind. He himself is a herald of God's coming, but he's also pointing to another herald, John the Baptist, who would himself prepare the way for God himself, for Jesus. So we have an arrival in two parts, and after that he says we can expect a work in two parts. Firstly, verses 2 and 3, the Lord will come to purify. Just read verse 2 with me again. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. Some of you will know that some metals can be made up of lots of different materials, and can in fact be very impure. And so if you want to make some, some dirty silver clean, well, the way to, to do that is to melt it, which to me feels counterintuitive, feels as though you're going to destroy it, but it's actually how you, you, you clean it. You heat it up, and when the silver melts, impurities in the metal rise to the surface, and you can skim them off. And when the metal cools again and solidifies, you have a pure silver. The one who is to come, says Malachi, 
is going to do something like that. He is a fire that melts the metal. A refiner's fire coming to purify. And in case we don't understand what he means, he continues to say he is fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is what it sounds like. It is soap, but not hand soap. It's a kind of detergent that's used to wash clothing, fabric, to make it clean. So the first kind of work that the Lord is coming to do is to purify. Morally and spiritually purify. Now what Malachi predicted as a future event, the authors of the New Testament recorded as history. John picks the idea up in his account of Jesus' life. For example, the evening before he died, Jesus met with his disciples, his closest followers. He ate with them in an upper room. And during the evening, Jesus poured some water into a bowl. And he stooped down and he washed his disciples' feet. Feet washing wasn't as unusual then as it is now. But it was unusual for a leader to wash the feet of his followers. And so one of Jesus' followers objected to what he was doing, and in response, Jesus said this, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's just a little picture, an acted parable that fleshes out what's being predicted in Malachi 3. The arrival of Jesus was the arrival of a purifier, of one who had come to clean Now, we used to drive a diesel car, an older diesel car, which had something built into the engine called a particulate filter. I won't pretend to know how that actually works, but I do know what it was was meant to do, meant to, to clean things, to stop any impurities from the diesel as it was being burnt from getting into the engine. But I remember putting the car into the garage on one occasion and getting the, the, the call from the mechanic, the dreaded call from the mechanic to give you the butcher's bill. And he said to me, I remember his words, he said, your engine is knackered, He's ever the poet. The filter, he said, isn't doing its job and we're going to need to fix it. Now, he might as well have told me that the car's flux capacitor had been discombobulated for all I understood what he was actually talking about. But I knew that it was bad news that the filter needed fixing because it meant that the engine was dirty, wasn't working as it was meant to. And you see, in one sense, the arrival of a refiner's fire of Fuller's soap is bad news too because it means that people need purifying, that they aren't clean Malachi says it himself, actually. Verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. The people of Malachi's day were spiritually and morally unclean. And so, too, are we. Unless we are washed clean, purified, Malachi says, Jesus says... We can have no share with a perfectly good and right and pure God. 
But whilst in one sense that is bad news, much like the news of a particulate filter being broken, in another sense, the arrival of a purifier, something that will make clean, is good news. Because in his kindness, Jesus came to do just that, to cleanse, to purify That is the first aspect to this work of the one who is to come, to cleanse, to purify. But there is a second aspect of his work too. I wonder if you noticed it. Look on with me to verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hard worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Be careful what you wish for, says Malachi, because justice is coming in judgment. Now, Malachi gives us what sounds like a bit of a scattergun list of various problems, sorcery and uh, lying and adultery. But the root cause of all of them, verse 5, is that people do not fear God. And that means that he isn't listing an especially bad bunch. He's listing all of us. That's the big idea. He says he's coming to judge those who do not fear him rightly. And this has struck me as being very, very prescient for us today as I've thought about it this week. If God is there, people ask, why doesn't he do something about all the injustice in the world? Doesn't he care? The answer is a resounding yes. He cares about justice more deeply than you or I ever will. And if the injustice in the world grieves you, you cannot begin to imagine how much it grieves him. And so you see, in one sense, it's a good thing to long for that to be put right. But be careful what you wish for, as you wish for God's justice to come. Because Malachi looks even further forward than the first arrival of that one who is to come. To the second arrival of the one who is to come. A day when Jesus will come again. Because you see, when Jesus comes again, it won't just be the injustice and the evil that he finds out there that meets with his just judgment. It'll be the injustice and the evil that lurks in the nooks and crannies of every human heart, including yours and mine. Now, what are we to do with all of that? Well, if we were to finish there, there would be reassurance in one sense in the fact that God is not indifferent to injustice in the world, quite the opposite. To know that justice will one day be done is good news. But in another sense, it's dreadful news. Because although we like to think that the moral or spiritual dividing line between people who are worthy of God's judgment and people who aren't is the dividing line between me and the really awful people in the world, that isn't the dividing line at all. The dividing line ultimately falls between people who have feared God, who've viewed him rightly, 
and those who haven't. And the problem is that there is only one who stands on those who have feared him rightly side of the line. And his name is Jesus. Everyone else is on the other side of the line. And so God's perfect justice, the justice that we do long for, well, it actually should fall on us too. Which is why the final two verses of this unit are so wonderfully reassuring. Just read with me again, verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. See, there is hope that although God cares more about justice than you or I ever have done, and that although he will ultimately one day see justice being done, well, he extends a gracious appeal. Return to him, drifting people, he says. Return and be washed. Be made clean. And if that were true for the people of Malachi's day, it is true of us too. In fact, I was thinking this week, if you were to try and and draw a a Malachi 3 timeline, if you were so minded, to plot where we are on that kind of timeline, we today find ourselves somewhere between the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. We're after verse 4 because Jesus has come to cleanse. He did that at the cross, past tense. But we're before verse 5 because Jesus is coming again to judge future tense. And so that leaves all of us with two options. Either we take our uncleanness to him and we humbly ask him to wash us clean, knowing that he's able to do it like a refiner's fire or fuller's soap. Or we stubbornly refuse And we hold on to that uncleanness until we meet that perfectly clean God in judgment. The question is, which is it going to be? Jesus says that he'll come again. Who can endure the day of his coming? The answer is, by yourself, not you. And so if you've never thought about this before, or perhaps thought about it but never reached a conclusion, let me encourage you to think on it now. Because what he says will happen, will happen. He has come to purify, and he will come in judgment. Will you bow the knee before him now? But perhaps that isn't you. Perhaps you're well aware of God's perfect justice, of how important it is to be cleansed and to be washed clean. But occasionally, just occasionally, perhaps we forget how good and how kind he has been to us. And that even his waiting now before coming again is itself an act of kindness. I wonder if you noticed that in chapter 3, verse 6, as you read it just a moment or two ago. 
I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It's an act of patience that he doesn't bring his justice about here and now. See, we can be tempted to think, can't we, that, that, that God's indifferent to the injustices we see in the world around us. But the truth is, he cares about them more deeply than you and I do. And so the fact that he hasn't returned in judgment yet is itself an act of extraordinary patience. Patience from which you and I have benefited if we've trusted in him. And patience in giving many more people the chance to turn to him and to receive his kindness. That's in fact what the CUs have been involved in, engaged in last week and this coming week, holding out the good news of a kind and gracious God to people who need to hear it before he returns again. It's why you'll hear me repeatedly encouraging us all to speak to the people around us of the good and saving news of the Lord Jesus before he comes again in judgment. So why not each of us take time to praise him for his patience and his kindness with each of us in purifying, washing clean? And why not think on the wonderful privilege it is to hold out that good news to other people who so need to hear it. Praise him for his patience and giving many people the chance to turn to him. Return to me, he says, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's thank him for his kindness and his patience in extending that offer to us now. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we come before you in praise this evening. Praise for your extraordinary justice, which goes beyond any sense of justice which we might feel. And yet your extraordinary patience in not meeting that justice out here and now. If you were to do so, who could stand? We thank you and praise you that in your perfect justice, you saw wrath fall not on us, but on another, on Jesus. We praise you for your grace. And we praise you for the opportunity now to hold out that grace to others who so need to hear it. We do pray, Lord, for any of us who have trusted in you, who have been purified and washed clean, that you would imbue each of us with a sense of the urgency in what we are engaged as we hold that good news out to people who do need to hear it before your return, Lord Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that you would please give each of us a sense of thanksgiving at your grace towards us and urgency and the need to tell others of that grace. We ask all of these things, trusting ourselves into your kind hands and do so in Jesus' name. Amen.